remain standing, and I would invite Donovan to come up. A lot of you know Donovan. Uh, a lot of you are here visiting uh, for Donovan. Don't be too nervous, brother, with uh, this whole group right here staring, <laughs> staring right at you. But uh, yeah, there you go. Um, James sent an email out this week to, to those in our church to uh, let you know that Donovan was preaching. Hopefully you guys have been praying for him this week. And uh, this is just a really exciting moment for us. We are, we've been so blessed uh, as a church to have several interns, uh, James going kind of all the way through seminary and Chris uh, Mott also being an intern, guys who are preparing for ministry, uh, being able to have the opportunity to preach. Donovan came under care of our presbytery in October, which basically means that uh, we are kind of overseeing this process. We're helping him discern his call for ministry. And this is a great opportunity for him to be able to, to preach uh, for the first time. And uh, it's exciting just to be, to be a part of this process. And um, so just all of, for those living stone people here, uh, this, is, this is an exciting uh, moment for us. And be encouraging Donovan in this process. He's in the thick of things with, with seminary, and there's a lot to do, and thinking forward to licensure and ordination, and uh, it's just a, some of us have been through it, and it's, it's a lot, but um, we're excited about this opportunity for you, brother. So uh, let me pray for you, and then bring us God's word. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for what you have done in Donovan's life, God, to call him out of darkness into your marvelous light. God, that he might be one who proclaims your excellencies. And we ask this morning, God, that you would fill him with your spirit, that you would lead him as he brings your word to us. God, that you would encourage him, remind him that he is just a cracked and clay, cracked and, and broken clay pot. He is just a, a simple vessel who is used for your glory. Uh, may this not be about him and his performance. Uh, may it be about you, God, and your glory and your excellency, working through and shining through him as your word is proclaimed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you. you bet. All right. Well, good morning. As we continue to worship our Lord this morning, please turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. And for those of you using our Pew Bibles, that can be found on page 786. Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1 and read all the way through to the end of the chapter. Habakkuk 3, verse 1, please pay special attention to the reading of God's holy word. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence 
and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that today that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, by your spirit, teach us the meaning of this prophecy of your word. And Lord, help us to grow in our love and our faith in you. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in school, whether you're in college or in high school, there tends to be two kinds of students. Those who ask questions and those that don't. I tend to lean more towards the latter in that I'm very content with being a wallflower hiding in the back of the classroom, hoping and praying the teacher just forgets my existence and I won't ask any questions whatsoever. Uh, the problem with that is that I have all sorts of questions I do want to ask, but for one reason or another, I'm too timid or shy to raise my hand. So um, like I'd want to, uh, maybe I don't want to uh, I'd say, I don't want to look stupid for not knowing the answer to a question, or maybe I don't want to make the teacher angry because they had been belaboring the same point over and over and over again, but I was zoning out for the past 15, 20 minutes, 
And I don't want to be that guy who raises his hand and is like, hey, can you just repeat yourself just one more time? <laughs> but there's also that other student who isn't afraid to ask questions, for better or worse. And these students will usually ask the questions that are on everybody else's mind, but they're the only ones who are gutsy enough to actually ask. So usually the scene will kind of go like this. Hey, teacher, what about such and such? And then you scan the room and you see everybody else nodding their heads like, yeah, yeah, I was wondering that same exact thing. So if that's you here today, keep up the good work. Us introverts truly do appreciate you. Uh, I do believe that Habakkuk is that second student. In chapters one and two, Habakkuk asks some very important and very hard questions that maybe we wouldn't be so bold to actually bring before the Lord. So to get everybody in the room up to speed, I'm going to lay out a little bit of context. So this prophecy was written around 640 to 615 BC. Israel had abandoned the Lord their God to go and worship other idols, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And so the Lord handed them over to the Assyrians. So the Assyrians come and they invade the land of Judah. And... Uh, they begin to occupy it. And during this occupation, there is widespread injustice and bloodshed among God's people. And so we reach chapter one, where Habakkuk raises his first question, his first complaint before the Lord, asking, Lord, how long do I or how long do we need to continue to cry out to you until you do something about this injustice? Lord, don't you see that the people whom you love are being abused and slaughtered in the streets. Lord, how long until you do something? And the Lord answers, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, and they are going to be my instruments for punishing Assyria and Judah. Well, Habakkuk did not like that answer. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says something like this. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on, Lord. The Chaldeans? The Chaldeans? You can't be serious. Lord, they are more wicked than your people. How can you, being a God of justice, a God with just eyes, look and use a people that is more wicked, more vile, more brutal than your people to punish them? And then he goes on further. And Habakkuk says, and I believe it's chapter two, he says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take my stand right here. I'm going to make a watch post and Lord, I'm going to be on the lookout for your answer. And I am not moving a muscle until you give me an answer. And that's, that's pretty bold, but the Lord is merciful and the Lord does give him an answer. He proclaims five woes against the Chaldeans, promising their utter and complete destruction. In other words, he's saying that they will not get away with their wickedness either. So as we reach chapter three, Habakkuk is forced to bow his head in prayer. This prophecy started off in chapter one, verse one, as an oracle, which literally means a message of burden. And now it is turned into a prayer to be lifted up to the Lord. And not only is this a prayer, but this is also a hymn. You look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Habakkuk, 
a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Chapter three is a prayer written in the form of poetry and music. And we know that by what clues our text gives us. Translators weren't really sure how to translate that word Shigianoth there, so they just took the Hebrew word and left it in there. But commentators suggest that Shigianoth has something to do with how this hymn was supposed to be sung. So for those of you who are more musically inclined, it could be akin to something as a key signature. We also see sprinkled throughout the chapter that word Selah, which is a musical pause or break. And then in verse 19, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. So likely this was a hymn that was sung among the congregation week by week. So poetry and music, they do a couple of things. Uh, the first thing that it does, it helps, they help us with memorization. I think we've all had throughout our weeks, like had a song stuck in our head. Usually it's just one verse that goes over and over and over again, but the tune helps us remember the lyrics. The second thing that poetry and music do is they help us express and navigate our emotions. We might not know exactly how to put to words what we're feeling, but we do know what song would best fit our mood. So make no mistake that this prophecy is an emotional prophecy. By the end of it, we see that Habakkuk is experiencing much joy, but this joy is mixed with much fear and anxiety. Verse two, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. Lord, I have heard of the things that you've done, and I've heard of the things that you will do. And he says, your work, O Lord, do I fear. Your work, O Lord, do I fear. He's not just a little bit afraid. He's not just a little worried. He's terrified. Verse 16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. His, he is shaking in his sandals. His legs are buckling underneath him because he sees the coming trouble that the Lord is about to bring upon his people. And so he's scared. I mean, that is a very human reaction, a very logical reaction to what he's seeing. He also says, your work, O Lord, do I fear. Your work. In the midst of this tribulation, or the tribulation that is about to come, that's about to happen, is not outside of the Lord's divine plan. He understands that the Chaldeans are, that, that are coming to invade, uh, or I should say, he's not, he's not afraid of the Chaldeans necessarily. He's afraid of the work of the Lord that is about to come upon them. So he doesn't blame the Chaldeans. He doesn't blame Satan for the work that's going on. He understands that God is the sovereign one who is in control. And that's the same, that, that's true for our trials and our suffering that we go through today, that the Lord is in control of those. Uh, you're not doing yourself any favors by saying that the suffering that I'm going through, the trials that I'm going through are not a part of God's will for my life. Because if you say they're not a part of God's will for my life, you're saying he's not in control. And if he's not in control, you rob yourself of any hope to be delivered from your trials. So how are, we, how are we to respond in troubling times like this, especially when we know that they're coming directly from the hand of the Lord? 
Habakkuk shows us by going to the Lord in prayer, and he starts off his prayer by offering three petitions to the Lord, and the first two are very similar, so we're going to tackle those together. The first two petitions, he says, in the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. The it there isn't just referring to God's works, but he is literally saying, in our days, in our times, make yourself known to us. Lord, this land is, is barren. Lord, we've abandoned your law and your word long ago. Revive your word among us. Lord, make yourself known to your people again. Notice also he says, in the midst of years, make it known. He's anticipating years of suffering. Now, he, just like us, whenever we're going through trials, whenever we're going through suffering, we would desire that the Lord shorten those days. But sometimes it's the will of the Lord that we need to endure years of heartache. And so he's pleading with the Lord, Lord, if I need to endure years of anguish, if, ang if years of anguish must persist and continue, Lord, still continue to reveal yourself to us and continue to reveal your word to us so that we will have the strength to endure. So those are the first two petitions. The third petition, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. This is a tender plea directly targeted at the heart of God. God has a right to be angry with sinners. God does not owe you mercy. God does not owe me mercy. But our prophet knows something about the character of God. He knows something about God's nature. He knows that the Lord does not delight in executing his wrath. He knows that the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked. But he knows also that our Lord delights in forgiveness. He knows that our Lord delights and enjoys showing mercy. And so he pleads with him, Lord, while you are pouring out your wrath, while you are pouring out your justice, remember your mercy. And the good news about this is, is that this prayer has already been answered. Where in scripture do we see wrath and mercy meeting in perfect harmony? We see it at the cross, at the cross where God was estranged from God and where the father poured out his wrath upon his son so that when he looks upon him, he can pardon you so that in his wrath, he could remember his people in his wrath. He could remember mercy. So in times of trouble, we need to call upon the Lord for mercy. And at the same time, as we ask the Lord to remember his mercy, we need to remember that he is merciful. So for, uh, I, I need to continue on, but we, we will come back to this. For those of you taking notes, the, the big idea, the big theme of this is remembering God's works. Remembering God's works. We're going to move to verses 3 through 15. In there, we see three things regarding God's works. Three things regarding God's works. We see the sum of his works, the purpose of his works, 
and our response to his works. The sum of his works, the purpose of his works, and our response to his works. So let's first take a look at the sum of his works. Verse three says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Taman was a, a mountainous region just south of Jerusalem and Mount Paran seems to be referring to Mount Sinai, which is where the Lord met with Israel, met with Moses to uh, establish his covenant with Israel. We also see that's the same place where the Lord wrote on some tablets and gave the law to them. And we, we see that also in Habakkuk chapter two, verse two, the Lord uh, commanding Habakkuk to write on tablets. And as we come to verses three and four, we see that the Lord's arrival is described like a thunderstorm. As he come, his lightning is filling the skies. His fame and his majesty are bright and inescapable. And then we see verse five, before him went plague and pestilence followed at his heels. This section is the outpouring of God's anger. He is depicted as a conquering warrior, wielding bow and arrows, spears, chariots, horses. In verse 12, he's described as marching through the earth in fury as a coming army would march through. We also see that the sea is trampled. The sun and the moon halt in their orbit and the mountains writhe before him. They writhe like a creature wiggling in pain on its back. This is God's majesty on display before us. Now, the Babylonians, they were mighty men. They were scary men. If you read back in chapter one, their descriptions of their, their spears, their horses, their chariots, their swords, they were brutal. Yes, they were scary for sure, but the Lord is much scarier. And verse four tells us that this is his power veiled. This isn't even all or the fullness of what the Lord could do. So our prophet's legs buckle beneath him as he witnesses this majesty in front of him, and he can hardly believe it. Even nature is trembling before almighty God. And then what follows seems to be images or events that have happened in Israel's history. So if you'd like, this is the summation or a collection of the works of God in Israel's history. And they also, these also serve another purpose. These are also a purpose, oh, sorry, they are a prediction of what is to come to the Chaldeans. And it, it is a prediction of what is going to happen to God's enemies in the final judgment. So let's, let's go over these. Let's go over some of these references. In verses three through five, we seem to see a reference to God delivering, delivering his people from the hands of the Egyptians. We see the reference to plague and pestilence, which the Lord has used in other places in the Old Testament as well, but it's most associated with Egypt. We see plague, pestilence, and then after the Lord delivers the Israelites from the Egyptians takes them across the Red Sea. It's there that 
Israel meets with the Lord at Mount Sinai, and the Lord's appearance there is also described as a thunderstorm. Verse 7, we see the conquering of the Midianites and the Cushites. And verses 11 and 12 seems to be a reference to Joshua 10, when God held the sun still at Gibeon, and so that Joshua could defeat, Joshua and his armies could defeat the Amorites. So why lay all of this out? How, how are these events connected, and what difference does that make to us? Thank you for asking. So there is, there is one thing that does tie all of these together. So we talked about the sum of God's works. Let's move over and talk about the purpose of his works. Last half of verse eight, he says, you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation. And then verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. God is riding out for the salvation of his people. His anger, his fury, his indignation, all of it is motivated by his love for his people, for his children. He delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians, from the Midianites, the Cushites, the Amorites. Every single one of them were defeated by the hand of the Lord. And the Lord delivered his people from them. In action movies, usually if the main character is a guy, the, the villain will capture his girlfriend or his wife and bring her to his lair. And then we get a scene where the villain says to our hero, do what I say or I'll kill her. And then, and then what? Then we see our hero getting angry. We get a close-up of his eyes turning bloodshot. And we know that our hero, he's about to let loose. And then the next scene, he goes and kills all the minions, and then he kills the main villain, saves the girl, right? Now, why does our hero react like that? Why does he have such a strong reaction? Well, because he loves the girl, and he would do anything and everything to save her. Now, what has our God done in a situation similar like that? What would our Lord do in that kind of situation? I want you to hear a warning from Psalm 105, verse 15. Psalm 105, verse 15. The Lord says this, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do not harm my prophets. Do not touch my anointed ones. In other words, if you touch them, if you dare bring them to harm, if you dare persecute them or kill them, you will suffer the consequences. So Habakkuk asked the Lord, Lord, how can you tolerate this injustice that's going on with your people? And we might ask as well something similar, Lord, how can you tolerate all of these false teachers going around Oshkosh? How can you allow all of these lies to be spread and allow your people to be led astray? Lord, why do you allow this evil to be done to your people? 
And God says, I don't. I don't tolerate wickedness. And I don't and I will not tolerate evil done to my people. Our captain, our Jesus, is not a pushover. If you read the book of Revelation, we see that he has eyes of fire. He has a sword that comes out of his mouth. His feet are like bronze. All of these weapons that we see here in Habakkuk 3, the spears, the bow and arrows, the horses, and the chariots, all of these are wielded by Christ himself. And he will come and use them to judge the living and the dead. That is terrifying. But remember, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith and your trust in the person and the work of Christ, then this mighty warrior is on your side. This mighty warrior fights for you. For those of you who are not in Christ, this mighty warrior is against you. And this is your call to repent to put your faith in him. Furthermore, in verse 13, we see the singular, your anointed. This is referring to the Messiah. Your anointed is the Messiah. That is the person through whom God would save his people. So he's not just going out. So in a sense, he's saying, I'm not just going out for the sake of the people that I love, though I am but I am going out for the sake of my beloved son. His blood was shed for his people and for every one of them that he intended to deliver, he will deliver and he keeps every soul for which he has died and rose again for. Now, if you're sitting there and you're struggling to believe this concept that God is a deliverer and these references, these verses aren't enough for you, then I'm going to lovingly give you a little bit of homework. So when you go home today, read through the book of Judges. And I think when you read through the book of Judges, you're going to find something very helpful. As you peruse through the chapters, you're going to see somewhat of a cycle. First, you're going to see God's people abandoning the Lord their God, and the Lord's anger burning against them. And then you'll see God punishing them by raising up a foreign power to oppress them. And then you'll see God's people crying out for mercy, Lord, deliver me. Lord, deliver us this day. Have mercy on us. And what you're going to see every single time following that is that the Lord has mercy on them. The Lord delivers them every single time. He raises up a judge and delivers them. Now, doesn't that sound like us? Doesn't that sound like our lives? When we go off and we go and start serving other idols, when we're off indulging in our sin, and then as, as we're mucking around there for a while, we start suffering the consequences of our sin, and then we pitifully cry out to the Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, deliver me. What will happen every single time is that the Lord delivers us. 
Now, there are some consequences to sin that will linger with us for the rest of our lives. That's the sad reality of sin. There are some consequences that we won't be rid of until we reach heaven's shore. But don't underestimate the mercy of the Lord. The Lord will not forsake the ones for which he died. So we should read verses 3 through 15 and be encouraged knowing that our God is a deliverer, not just seven times, not just 70 times, but 70 times, seven times. The Lord will deliver us every time. And we should also be encouraged knowing that our Lord will bring justice upon those who would dare lead us astray, upon those who would dare persecute us or even kill us. God's justice might seem slow to us, but I promise you, it will come to pass. So we saw the sum of his works, and the purpose of his works is for the salvation of his people. But how should we respond to his works? Habakkuk shows us two responses. The first one, second half of verse 16. Yet... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Well, now that's a change in tone. If I recall, Habakkuk, were you not the one earlier in this little prophecy? Were you not the one? asking all of these questions, Lord, how long until you deliver us? Lord, why do you tolerate this evil? If I recall, Habakkuk, you were the one who stomped your foot and said, Lord, I'm making a watch post. I'm going to be right here, and I'm going to look out for your answer. And now you say, I, I will quietly wait here. That's a good answer. That's a good choice. But what happened? Why this sudden shift? He didn't get the answer he expected. He didn't even get the answer that he wanted. His circumstances didn't change. And in fact, he foresees that his circumstances are actually going to get worse. <laughs> so what happened? Why are you all of a sudden going to be silent, Habakkuk? Are you just taking the mentality of, well, it is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. So I'm just going to sit back and just take it. No, that's not what he's doing whatsoever. If you remember in verses three and four, what happened? The Lord revealed himself to him. The Lord revealed himself and he revealed his plan to him. He saw his splendor. He saw the majesty of his beloved king. And that was enough for him. There comes a time that our questions need to stop. There comes a time that our complaints need to stop. There is a time to wrestle with the Lord. There is a time to wrestle with his promises and lay our questions bare before him. But eventually those seasons of questioning him need to stop. And we need to be like Habakkuk and quietly wait upon him. But how do we do that? Well, we start by submitting to his will, by accepting that our circumstances around us are a part of his divine plan. 
you won't always get the answers you want. And in fact, I'd argue if you are asking a ton of why questions to the Lord, Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? I'd argue that you more often than not will not get an answer. We need to live by faith, which I'll talk about here in a second. As Pastor Josh brought up last week, our, uh, our waiting is not supposed to be a passive waiting. We're not to sit around and wait upon the Lord by doing nothing, but rather we are to have an active waiting. We are to be in our Bibles often, praying often, to constantly be pursuing and desiring the Lord, to be like Habakkuk and desire that his word be revived in us and revived in the people around us. Paul Tripp gives us this quote. He says, waiting means believing he will do what he's promised and then acting in confidence. Waiting means believing he will do what he's promised and then acting in confidence. Habakkuk chapter two, verse four says that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This isn't just about your justification, which it is about your justification. You are saved once for all in Christ by faith, but it's by faith that you live your everyday life. The righteous shall live by faith. Some commentators even say that this could be, uh, this could also refer, or you could replace that word live with preserved. You are preserved by faith. Faith is confidence and trust in what you can't see. You can't, you don't understand why these hardships are in front of you. You don't understand why these troubling times have fallen on you. But what you do know and what you can trust is the Lord who placed you in these circumstances. So Habakkuk sees the coming trouble. He anticipates that it's probably going to last for years. And then he'll quietly wait. So what does this submission and what does this waiting look like in our daily life? Well, I think Habakkuk shows us that too. Move now with me to verse 17, Habakkuk 3. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. This is a picture of famine, something that America, for the most part, at least in most of our lifetimes, we're not too familiar with. But famine would occur either during or after wartime. So stay with me as I read some verses out of the book of Lamentations. Uh, these, these laments come from times of famine. Lamentations. Lamentations. 
chapter 2, verse 12. He says, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Verse 20, look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Chapter 4, verse 4. The tongues of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Verses 9 through 10, happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. And last, chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. This paints a horrid picture of real life circumstances. Now our lives might not get this ugly and let's hope and pray that they never do, but we can still relate to the suffering that's going on. We can still relate to the suffering. We can have trouble reconciling the fact that God is a sovereign God, a God who is in control of all things, and yet he seems to look upon our troubles and our trials idly, doing nothing. We might pray, Sovereign Lord, my finances are dwindling. I can't pay the bills. And I can hardly afford to put food on my table. Sovereign Lord, my relationships are falling apart. Friends and family are leaving me left and right, and I am all alone. Sovereign Lord, my loved one died too soon. Lord, you took them too soon. Sovereign Lord, my disease is getting worse, and I have prayed to you over and over again, and Lord, you have not healed me. Sovereign Lord, where are you? Look with me now at verse 18. As our hymn is turned into praise, as we look at now the second response, he says, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk, how can you be joyful? How can you rejoice? What enables you to have joy? You see, we seem to be so prone to only rejoice in the Lord when good things are happening around us, when blessings are spilling to our left and to our right. It's only then that we say that the Lord has been good to me this past week. No, the Lord has been good to you even in the midst of your trials. Now, 
I just want you to hear, I, like, I know that you believe that there is going to be joy in heaven, and there is, that there is going to be joy in eternity, but I'm not talking about your joy in heaven. Habakkuk is not talking about the joy that you are going to experience in heaven. He is talking about you experiencing joy right here, right now, in the midst of famine, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of your financial troubles, in the midst of people dying left and right around you. But the million dollar question is, how can we obtain that joy? He says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Your joy, your happiness, your security, your fortitude is founded in the Lord, not in your circumstances, not in what's going on around you. It is in Christ that you draw your strength. As it says in verse 19, God, the Lord is my strength. We saw in chapter 1, verse 11, that the world gets their strength from their idols. They get their strength from themselves. They try and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. That strength is going to amount to nothing in the end. And you say that, well, that all sounds very nice, but I don't feel very strong. I'm not denying my salvation. I'm not denying that I'm not saved, but I'm telling you, I'm feeling very weak right now. How do I draw upon that strength? You draw upon that strength by faith. Not in faith that things will get better. Those words that maybe you have said or your friend has said, saying things are going to get better because they have to. Those words are really nice. They're very well-meaning. But unfortunately, they have no basis. Your faith must be in the God of your salvation. That means you don't know what's in store for you in the future. But you do know these things. You do know that the Lord is in control. You do know that the Lord is merciful. He has a nature of mercy. You've seen him over and over deliver his people every time they cry out to him. And you also know that our Lord is motivated by his love. He is motivated by his perfect love for you. Verse 19, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes, my, he makes me tread on my high places. Though Habakkuk's legs were buckling beneath him, God did not fail to make him stand strong. The deer is a symbol of a creature with strong legs. They are able to navigate the dark and thick forest in the middle of the night with speed and agility, which is exactly what our prophet needed as he navigated his dark times. So also we need that strength as we navigate our dark times. God revealed his splendor to him. He revealed his plan to him. And he made his feet tread on high places. That is to say that not only is God going to help you 
make it through your trials. You're not just going to make it through your trials, but you're going to tread on high places. That is, you will find victory in him, triumphant victory in him, joy in him. So we need to trust in the Lord in our troubled times. We need to call on him for mercy and remember that he is merciful and remember his majesty. He's made his works and he's made himself known to us in our time. And remember that Christ came down and defeated sin and death on our behalf as a conquering warrior. In his wrath upon the cross, in his wrath, he remembered mercy. And finally, in troubled times, rejoice in the Lord, and he promises to be your strength. Let's pray. Lord, our Lord, your name is majestic throughout all the earth. Lord, you are sovereign over all things. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor meet grace our table, Lord, we will trust in you. Lord, help us to find our strength in you and our joy in you. We love you and praise your holy name. Amen.